Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. Today is a special edition. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michelle Nelson, who is a scientist in the Collaboratory for Research and Innovation at Bridgepoint and at the Lindenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute. Today we're going to talk about a paper that we published this year entitled Healthy Research Ecosystem, Healthy Researchers, the Researcher as an Organism of Focus Within a Research Ecosystem. Now, originally when we wrote this paper, it was longer, more academic, and we published it more as a translational document. And uh, we left a lot out. So we thought, why don't we have a conversation and talk about some of the things that uh, we didn't talk about in the paper. And to sort of get us started, I want to quote from the uh, Naylor report, which was the stimulus. Uh, so David Naylor was the chair of the report that came out in 2017 called Investing in Canada's Future, Strengthening the Foundations of Canadian Research. And in that they say that the we believe in the advantages of a life cycle approach are obvious. A healthy and sustainable research ecosystem depends on ample opportunities for new researchers to break into the system and establish themselves, avoid gaps as they transition to mid-career, and provide strong support for researchers in their peak years of output and impact. It also makes it fair and balanced appraisals of proposals by senior researchers without overweighting their history or undervaluing their potential for further contributions regardless of age. Wonderful sentiments. Michelle, how close are we to a system that looks like that? That's a great question. It probably depends on the perspective of the person who's actually responding. Um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of shift as a result of the Naylor report, thinking about how we can facilitate some of those early career experiences as a just out of early career uh, stage researcher myself. Um, I noticed from 2013 on that there were shifts in sort of consciousness around some of those issues, but we have not, um, we've not achieved that. That's still aspirational. Yes. One of the things that we originally had in our paper was a dialogue from somebody who was at the beginning of their career, uh, being yourself, and someone who is uh, probably close to the end of their research career, such as myself. And how I got into this was reflecting on what was seeming to be valued from my research career. Uh, in particular, when I finished my Canada research chair and I had to give an end of mm -hmm. funding report and the categories under which I was being assessed struck me as not actually capturing many of the elements of a research ecosystem that needed to be there. There is no valuation of contributions to service to the research community itself. Yeah. And there was a lot of focus on what I would call um, hard outputs like publications and citations, maybe a little bit about policy impact. But if you step back from that approach and said, why would anybody want to be interested in any of the kind of soft things like reviewing, committee memberships, et cetera, et cetera? What were your thoughts on that? Well, so it's interesting because when you were, so when you came back from doing that deep thinking about the ecosystem idea and your own career that, and we sat down and had that conversation and you were talking specifically about that, I thought, yes, I mean, we all strive for those outputs that you're able to say, yes, we've done this. Yes, I've done that. What do I do next? But 
we also, I think, had a conversation about the shifting nature of science doesn't always line up to those to those outputs. Never, you can't all be first, you can't all be last. So what happens to everybody in between on a publication? Um, but also, a lot of those opportunities are no longer available or they're highly uh, competitive um, and where it becomes basically a lottery. And so I think at that point, I actually said to you, I'm not sure that that's actually a realistic hope and expectation for somebody within the first five years yeah. of their academic career. Yeah, and I think that's an important insight. So at, at my juncture, I was looking back and saying, you know what, I've been fortunate, I've been well fed. And how often, you know, should I just continue like getting more and more and more? What point would that serve? Or do we think about a deliberate balancing? So if we're going to have a healthy ecosystem that's sustainable and that avoids gaps, uh, that allows, so if we're going to have ample opportunities for new researchers to break into the system, thinking about, you know, successive cohorts, you need to plan for resources for 25, 30 years for those researchers to thrive. So you have people at different stages of their career, but the way we fund research in Canada is like, here's a big pot and everybody goes for that pot. And it doesn't seem to, so the, the re realities of funding and the research career don't line up. They seem to be miscalibrated in my mind. And we know be success begets success. Yeah. So even though in the report, it was clearly stated that, you know, we should try to create structures that support senior colleagues' engagement in the system without heavily weighting their previous success, we know as reviewers and panels and committees that those success indicators actually increase confidence and actually give you better ideas. Yeah. So it does actually snowball that you get success begets success. It's interesting. So just thinking about your own experience, though, Ross, I wonder, you know, when was the moment that you thought we need to step back and have this like in your own experience, that idea of, you know, I could continue on the path. Um, and and actually write grants, get grants, create opportunities for myself? Or like, what was the thing that actually sparked this thought discussion for you? Well, it's something that had been percolating for some time. So I have a very good colleague, actually. We wrote a book on the philosophy of medicine together, and he was the president of the University of Toronto Scarborough, Paul Thompson. And he and some colleagues who had been deans and presidents of universities wrote a paper on what they called academic citizenship, in which they talked about all of the different components that people engaged in. So they were speaking about the university life, but I think it speaks to the research life. What are the things, what are the qualities, characteristics, and attributes that members of a community need to both possess? So it's the give and the take. So here are the things, so everybody has to, like, nobody likes to be the graduate coordinator. Well, some people do. But uh, but there are roles and responsibilities in academia, but also in research institutes that need to be performed. And they need to be taken on willingly, and they need to be performed with competence and or more. And nothing, uh, so at the same time I was thinking of the previous, I think it was the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences had a research impact approach and it was very industrial, like here's your inputs and the output of the research process was a high impact 
paper. And I thought, okay, everything that we've put to incentivize people who enter the research world is all about self-interest. Mm -hmm. And research is about a community and community service. It's a commons. And we do not train PhD students. We train them to be competitive. And it's not that I'm against competition or I'm arguing for mediocrity, but there's a way of thinking about building and growing common resources that maybe doesn't put first past the post as the ultimate value or publication in a particular set of journals that are valued by smaller communities. When you think about the broader academic community, you've got all these little niches. So when I started to study scientometrics and looked at you know, publication and citation patterns across a wide range of disciplines, you see there's great differences. So mathematics, which is like core, uh, there's very few people who say mathematics isn't a serious science or a serious enterprise. Uh, their papers have very few citations, right? They don't live in the citation world. And then you've got different models of knowledge production. So you look at particle physics and, you know, places like Fermilab or CERN in Switzerland, where you've got like 350 authors on a paper, right? But everybody's made a meaningful contribution. So I think there's a lot of different creative ways we could start to think about understanding what counts. And at the core of it, to me, was what is a good academic citizen? That's somebody who has a research career, they have a focus and a passion, but they also willingly contribute to the uh, research ecosystem. So ecosystems require a certain amount of management. We'll come a little later, hopefully, and talk about what a, what a good research ecosystem would look like if, in fact, research ex ecosystems actually exist. So that's what got me stimulated to thinking about this. And then I started to just reflectively apply it to my own career because, uh, you know, I've got time left on this earth. <laughs> Presumably I could do something with that. You know, I could do more of the same, but it didn't, it seemed hollow to me after a point. So it does seem like there is a, a need to make the conscious shift. And I know when I think about my own experience, in fact, I may have even said to you that, I mean, I recognize that I was very fortunate. Um, I got a scientific appointment within a well-respected uh, research unit, and I had academic appointments at well-respected universities. Within a year and a half, I mean, I did my postdoc and I got a scientific appointment. And I, I know that that is increasingly rare. And I was extremely fortunate. Timing, skills, interests, experience come together. And I got the first two CIGR grants I applied for. So I didn't really understand the slog that it was going to be. Yeah. And then as I moved in, I, I just kept thinking, how do we actually how do we pay credence to what the system really is, do the ecosystem management that's required, but also actually consciously thinking about the transition from building a career, sustaining a career, engaging in, and then actually retiring or divesting out of your active research role. And I don't, I don't think we, we don't talk about that yeah. in an academic no. career. No, there's so much that goes unspoken about our life and our life work. And a lot of it is, I would say, tacit. It's 
I wouldn't say it's unconscious. I think people are aware of what their motivations are and what the challenges and the struggles. And I think people are hyper aware of the valence structure. So even when I have conversations and say, you know, the H index is a spurious measure of value or quality, they'll say, ah, ha, 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 yes, but they still believe the number. Or citations aren't, aren't everything that they're cracked up to be, ha, ha, ha. or high value journals. And one of the interesting things is the whole turbulence in academic publishing and, and where people go to find ways to get their knowledge products, their research out is reflexively what shapes the values. So it would be really nice if, if funders and universities and research institutions would actually convene a table and sit down and talk about what's in everybody's common interest. As it stands now, you know, I sit on one of the CIHR uh, Institute Advisory Boards, but the funders are over here. They're kind of this monolithic, you send your ideas to us, we send them out to a somewhat transparent process called peer review, and you either succeed or you fail. If you succeed, hooray. If you fail, which 90% of grants do, it's back to the drawing board. And people have normalized that process as if this is the only way that it could be because there's kind of a pseudo-meritocratic view in this. One, it assumes that peer review actually has the capacity to identify high-impact, high-quality science in a reliable manner. There is not a shred of peer-reviewed evidence that suggests that that's actually the case. So why don't we admit the failings of the current system and open up a discourse about how we might want to structure it in a different way. Uh, I totally agree. And wouldn't maybe we should convene that table. Yeah. Maybe maybe we don't wait for the institution. Perhaps we start to do that from groundswell. Yeah, and my my fear actually is, you know, it's no secret that we're in a somewhat anti-intellectual, adverse to rigorous research culture these days. People go and find evidence or information, uh, it's either brought or delivered through curated bubbles that they've made for themselves. But it seems that, you know, even governments are finding ways to say, you know, we're not really sure what higher education is providing. Are we really getting the impact we want out of research? Which really, in my mind, misunderstands what the nature of the research enterprise is. It's by definition high risk. It was uncertain. If we knew what we were going to get, <laughs> we wouldn't need to do the research. And I don't know who said it. I'd have to go back and look. But somebody on Twitter said, "If it, the reason that you know we don't know the answer. If we knew the answer, we wouldn't call it research. Yes, the re is the kind of the interesting part of that." Um, now, I don't think we can have this conversation without acknowledging a couple of broader social constructs. I mean, one, a lot of what we identify as being good academic citizens. I mean, other people identify that as academic housekeeping, mm -hmm. which there's a strong gender yes. um, kind of function in that. And certainly in my own circles, a lot of the housekeeping, um, not within my current research institute, fortunately, um, uh, but in my kind of broader circles, there is a somewhat social expectation that as a female colleague, um, that you do these things. 
And these are not the things that are valued in our current ecosystem. Yes. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't think about that. Um, and we, maybe we can talk about that. And I think the other thing that came up as you were talking for me is I'm seeing a lot more the solution is start reducing the number of senior colleagues. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been published in a few places. I sent you an article the other day about should we be encouraging older physicians to retire? And it sparked for me that the answer is not simply reducing the number of senior colleagues and encouraging them to retire. It's, as you said, really about creating roles that capitalize on your experience, skill, knowledge, um, meta knowledge within the domain so that we're all benefiting from it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is the conversation, the concepts, the language we use for, lack of better terms, late life course researchers. They still have a lot to offer, sometimes up to their eighth, ninth decades. And the issue is how we create opportunities for people to meaningfully engage and deploy those skills. And, you know, you might want to have some streams that incentivize people that really want to get out, you know, so there is, and sort of say, well, here's a pathway. You could say, you know, we're going to really start to evaluate your contributions, not in terms of the number of publications and citations, but by your giving back to the ecosystem itself. So rather than junior colleagues being the ones that are doing the grant peer reviews, the journal peer reviews, you know, I remember how crazy busy I was trying to get established as a researcher. You were doing everything all the time. Oh yeah, I'll review that paper. Oh yeah, I'll review that grant. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you feared if you ever said no to anything that your career would come to an end. Thank you.